So, um, I've been getting myself into trouble lately, um, dealing with some, some uh, maybe some more, a little bit uh, gnarly, controversial theological issues. Uh, three weeks ago, I started talking about salvation, and this was prompted, of course, there was someone who was, had questions about it, and actually challenges to me about it and what I mean by salvation. And so we've kind of been on a roll talking about these things. But I was had another challenge that came to me just recently from this, this lovely lady over here. And she said, what we really need to talk about are life applications. You know, we, we can talk about theology, we can talk about concepts, but how do they apply to our life? And I thought that was excellent. I try to get that in, but, you know, at the end of a... 35 or 40 minute message, sometimes that gets kind of lost. We're going to focus on that on Tuesdays. That's we're really going to focus on application and the discussion and all of the life circumstances and comments and things that will come up will aid us in directing those conversations so that we can see how this applies, how is it relevant. But I want to try to do that on Sunday mornings as well. Never just leave something hanging in abstract air, but really bring it down and create that one-to-one correspondence. Why is this important? Why talk about it? And I think that's kind of where I want to go today because I got challenged again about something. So I thought, hey, let's talk about it. Why don't we? And uh, some of you, most of you, if you've been here for any time, have heard me tell my Emery Tang story. And for those of you who are here for the first time or have never heard this story before, my joke will be new. And uh, there was a, gosh, it's getting to be 30 years ago uh, when I was starting my journey. I practically lived up at the Franciscan Retreat House at Sarah, called Sarah Retreat, and befriended two um, priests there who really were mentors and really helped me and were really coming from a completely different point of view and, and helped me to, to process something new. A lot of resistance at first, but uh, I, I can look back and see how instrumental they were. One of them, who uh, you know, was a, looked like a six-foot Yoda in his brown robe and the hood of the Franciscans, his name was Emery Tang. He was a first-generation Chinese-American. And um, I went into his office because he had made what I thought was a really outrageous statement in the group meeting. And I had my Bible with me, and I was loaded for bear. And as soon as I got the first words out of my mouth, he just put his hand smack in my face and said, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. End of conversation. Now, at the time, I thought it was a complete cop-out, of course. But now I realize, what else can you say to someone about your faith? Something that can't be proven anyway, not empirically, not logically. What you can tell them is what you're convinced of. And I (laughs) thought over the years, how many times had Emery Tang, you know, the, the Franciscan, actually engaged in those type of conversations when someone came to him like I did and debated with them or, or, or tried to persuade them maybe or, or at least had a conversation and a discussion about it until he realized that it was basically kind of fruitless, that just talking at the level of, of ideas back and forth and debating or arguing about them had really so little to do with the spiritual life overall. And he got to the point finally where he just didn't have them anymore. And although it was frustrating for me at the time, now I am the same age he was when I was talking to him those 30 years ago. And now how many of those discussions have I had in my 18-year pastoral career now? And I realize that I can't do any better than Emery did. 
Yet, at the same time, my job description is a little bit different. I am a teaching pastor, and I am working with people who are trying to process these things. So I'm still game to try to explain to you why I believe what I believe and what I'm convinced of. But at the same time, I've gotten to the point where I realize it's not the complexity of the theology or the, or the gnarly argument that we're talking about or the concept we're talking about that really is the issue. It's working through it and getting to the simplicity on the other side. That's the issue. Can we at least talk through something to the extent that we can lay it down in our minds and in our hearts and get that tension gone enough that we can just be again, completely present and connected and able to be fearlessly vulnerable, open, undefended to everyone that we meet? That's the key. So as we talk through difficult issues... The reason we're doing this is to remove the roadblocks to be able to just be on the other side, completely connected again. So what did I challenge E.T. with that day? He made the comment in the general, in the general group that uh, Satan was just a metaphor for the evil that we are inclined to do as human beings and didn't really exist as a being, angelic or otherwise. And I just thought, oh my God, that's just so wrong. I have to go talk to him about this. (laughs) Karma is a witch. Can I tell you? Because here, 30 years later, now I really understand why Emery said what he said and why he held the opinion that he held. And maybe I'm not exactly where he is, but I get it. And now people are coming to me, and the last challenge that I got was, well, you don't believe in Satan, you know, and, and that is a theological thing that we really need to have in the church. So let's talk about it for a little bit, because I think this is important. And the first thing I guess I want to do is set the record straight. I never said that I don't believe that Satan exists as a sentient being. I never said that. But what I did say is that Scripture is more ambiguous than you would ever believe, having just casually read it, about who or what this Hasatan really is. And that's where we need to kind of jump in a little bit. You know, I have said so many times that if we don't approach Scripture from a Hebrew point of view, then we're not going to be able to understand what it's really telling us. And some people ask, well, why Hebrew? Why should I care, you know, what Hebrews think? Because we're Christians. But it's the Hebrews who wrote our Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the way they understood the world and the way they communicated through these books to the people that they, that they were living with, to the generation that they were a part of, has everything to do with how well we're going to understand what the original intent was, what they were trying to communicate. And Scripture leaves this question of Satan open. It does not close it for us. And so, what is the Hebrew concept of Satan. First of all, the word that is mostly used, or the phrase that is mostly used, is hasatan. Ha in, in Hebrew is the definite article. It's like saying the. So it's the Satan, first of all. But the Jews are so completely fixated on God as one, a unity, absolutely omnipotent and sovereign, that in their conception, there could be nothing that could come against God. That would be like having another God, and Jews don't go for that. So there is nothing that could 
have any kind of cosmic struggle or battle with God, that would be a real battle because God is complete, sovereign, and whole. Yet they do have a concept of hasatan, which literally means the adversary. But this adversary, when it is... See? When... When this adversary is being portrayed as an actual character, as a being, it's more like God's employee. Satan, Satan, is working for God. There is nothing that Satan can do against God. So what in the world is the point of this? The idea is like a courtroom prosecutor or a courtroom adversary. If you're on the defense, it's the prosecutor. If you're on the prosecution, it's the defense attorney. But whoever is on the other side of the aisle from you, they're the ones that are bringing uh, information or bringing evidence that is refuting what you have to say. And every step of the way, they're trying to check you and trying to defeat you. And so the idea of the accuser is like that. The idea of the adversary is like that. And yet at the same time, Jews believe that we were given free will. Because without free will, there is no love as we understand love. Free will has to be true, has to be real. How in the world are we going to know that free will is real, that our choices are real, if there isn't an alternate choice for us to make? This is what Satan supplies to us. Supplies the alternative. Supplies the temptation, if you will. Supplies the trial in order for us to realize that our choices are real. There is something that we really need to choose. God is one God with no opposite. So Satan is really God's employee, is helping God to fulfill his will, even though it's in a negative context. All right? Is that, is that even a little bit clear? You know? No. <laughs> no, it's not. But the main thing to take away from all that said is that Satan is still furthering God's will, is not in conflict with it, and cannot alter it in any way. That is huge in us trying to come to terms with a different way of looking at Satan. Now, how does this play out? Well, let's take a look. I put a bunch of scriptures here. We're going to go through them quite quickly. So don't be uh, dismayed by how much black there is on the page in your, uh, in your handout here. But it's just to give you a sense. At 1 Kings 11.14, Then the Lord raised up an adversary, that is Hasatan, that's the original Hebrew, to Solomon. So the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line in Edom. So in this case, the adversary is just a man. The adversary is a, another political foe of Solomon. But the Lord raised up the adversary to Solomon. Hasatan as a man. Numbers 22, starting at verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary, Hasatan, against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. So now here, Hasatan is being portrayed as an angel of the Lord, that is an emissary of God, to do something that the Lord wanted done. So first as a man, second as an angel of the Lord. Not an angel against the Lord, but an angel in ally with the Lord. Job, probably one of the most famous places that we can encounter Satan, right? Right in the first chapter, starting at verse 8. This is the scene in heaven where the Lord is, says to Satan, Consider my servant Job. Isn't he great? 
And the Lord says to Satan, Hasatan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan, Hasatan, answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house, and that all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And so here is the courtroom accuser. Here is the courtroom adversary. But here also is Satan being portrayed as an actual being, a character. This is the only place in the Bible where he's a speaking character. There are three other books where he's presented in the same way, and that would be Chronicles and, uh, what are they, Chronicles, Psalms, and Zephaniah. But here he's a full speaking character. So now we've seen him just as a man, portrayed as an angel of the Lord, and now portrayed as a formal accuser. Now you might be thinking in your head, but what about Lucifer? What about Lucifer being thrown from heaven, right? And you're remembering that story. That story actually doesn't appear in the Bible. It's a traditional story that is pulled from the Bible, but it's pulled from two basic scriptures. First is Isaiah 14. That's the most famous one where actually the word Lucifer is used if you look it up. But if you read the entire paragraph in which that verse comes, talking about Lucifer, O star of the morning, how you have fallen from the heavens, That really is talking about the king of Babylon. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And the context forces us to realize that Lucifer is the Latin translation of Hillel in Hebrew, which just means brightness or light bringer. And Lucifer is the Latin translation of that that was used for the morning star, which is the planet Venus. And Venus is the third brightest object in the heavens after the sun and the moon. But since it's inside our orbit and it's always close to the sun, we don't see it very often. And one of the few times that you see it is right before dawn, before the sun comes up. Venus can rise above the the horizon in the east and it'll be this hugely bright star. But it only lasts for a moment and then the sun comes up and obliterates it. And it was the perfect analogy for the way that Nebuchadnezzar rose as a king of Babylon you know, was arrogant and equated himself with God and then immediately fell. There is also a, a section of, of Ezekiel 28, I believe. Same thing, except same type of story, same sort of thread, but now it's about the king of Tyre, which was a Phoenician kingdom close to Israel. Same kind of context. And so we don't have anything that actually tells us in the Scripture about Lucifer the way that we have understood it or the way that our traditional stories have told us. Does that mean that Lucifer doesn't exist or or the, or the devil doesn't exist as a being? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that Scripture leaves this open. There are all these different ways of looking at it. And when you put that through the filter of the way the Jews thought about Satan differently, radically differently than we do, a different picture is starting to emerge, right? But not only that, Hasatan doesn't need to refer to a person or a being at all. Take a look at Jesus talking at Matthew 13. We read this just a few weeks ago in a different context. But this is the parable of the sower and the seeds. And that Jesus went out of the house, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. 
And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Now, a few verses later, when he is interpreting that for his followers who ask him, What the heck are you talking about? He says this at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, and in Aramaic, this is satana, which is the analog of hasatan in Hebrew, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whose seed was sown by the road. Okay, so we got satana, and it's translated as the evil one. Not really a very good translation in this context. Why? Satana, just like Hasatan, means adversary, but the roots tell us that it's that which causes us to turn aside. It's that which causes us to turn astray. Now, Jesus immediately has given us the image of what he's trying to say. He doesn't talk about Satana in the actual parable. He talks about it in the interpretation. What he talks about in the parable are the birds that come and take the seed away. Well, bird in Aramaic is parata. And that literally means to fly about, to flutter, or it can mean by extension to squander or to dissipate. It's kind of like being ADD. You know, you have an inability to focus on things. You have an ability, inability to follow through and persevere and stay on course. Every last thing is like, oh, there's a squirrel. And you're off on that tangent and you're off on this tangent, but you can't stay focused. What he's talking about here is our inability our inclination to be all over the place instead of staying undiverted, true in our hearts to the word that has been given us. This is not a person at all. This is our human inclination. And what Jesus is really referring to are what the Jews call yetzer hara. Yetzer hara. Ra in Hebrew is the word for evil. And it's opposed to yetzer hatov, which is goodness. Tov, good. The idea is that this is the inclination to evil, yetzer hara, the inclination to good, yetzer hatov. And so we've got these two ideas together. Then Jesus is kind of coming off of this from a, a side place. This inclination to evil, the Jews believe, is born with us. You are born with the inclination to evil, but the inclination to good is born when you come of age when you become self-aware. Now, this is starting to sound like original sin, right? That's probably what y'all are thinking. But the Jews don't have a concept of original sin. In fact, their idea of this inclination to evil is as an absolutely necessary part of us as human beings. They understand it as the inclination to attain, to acquire, to preserve self, to survive, to procreate. All the things that we do to provide for our physical self is this inclination to evil. But it's really not evil unless it's unbalanced and is going off on its own without being balanced by Yetzer Hatov, the inclination to good, which would be the inclination to give away, to help others, an other-centeredness. These two in balance are exactly what... Each human being needs. They have a great story that appears in the, in the Talmud that kind of illustrates this. And the idea is that finally someone was able to capture the inclination to evil in humans and lock it away in a box. 
kind of like Pandora's box. See, they thought all their problems were going to be solved now. The world was going to be completely peaceful and good because the inclination to evil in human beings was locked away. But what happened? Nobody wanted to get out of bed. Nobody would do their chores. Nobody did any work. In fact, there were no eggs or milk anymore because the chickens, the roosters weren't going after the chickens and the bulls weren't going after the cows and so there was no milk, there were no eggs. Everything that makes the world work and pushes it forward and and creates the diversity stopped. And so what did they have to do? They had to let it back out again so that the world could, could take off and start to work as it normally does. And so this is the idea that even though we're talking about an inclination to evil, it's only that untamed drive that hurts people and relationships in the drive for self-preservation that takes us into that sinful territory. But this is a balance between us. It's necessary. Kind of like that story, if you've ever heard the Native American story where the grandfather is telling his grandsons, there's two wolves inside of me. Have you heard this one? Because there's two wolves inside of me. One is good and one is bad, and they're constantly fighting. The little boy asks, well, which one wins? He says, the one I feed. You know, Or maybe you're thinking of the angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder constantly yammering at you and pulling you. But the thing to take away from this idea is it's our choice. Unencumbered, it is our choice to choose either which way we go or to choose to bring our lives into balance. There is no coercive effect from either the inclination to evil or the inclination to good. We are not victims of it. We are the ones who choose. We are the ones who move. Remember Taba and Bisha we talked about, good and evil in Aramaic. Not good and evil as, as cosmic forces in a cosmic battle with each other, completely mutually exclusive, but a continuum between unripeness and ripeness. Bisha, unripe. Taba, good, ripe. Immature, mature. Out of harmony, out of place, not ready for prime time. Or all of the above, ready for prime time, in the right place, in the right time. The same idea here is moving through this. When you think about Jesus in the wilderness, the 40 days symbolically that he spent, what was he doing there? He was balancing Yetzir Hara with Yetzir Hatov. He was moving through all of the temptations of the adversary, moving through all the drives for just physical survival, physical pleasure, physical advancement, and moving into a balanced relationship where he was one with Father so that he could come back and actually be a blessing and a boon to his community. I have one more illustration that I wanted to give you, and I hope maybe this brings it home. This is in Genesis, and this is the story of Jacob and Esau. I don't know if you remember the story, but uh, um, Isaac, the father of, of Jacob and Esau, has these two sons, and he prays to God because his wife, Rachel, was barren for many years. And then she gets pregnant. And it picks up right here at Genesis 25, where Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, was conceived. I'm sorry, Rebekah, not Rachel. But the children struggled together within her. She had twins. And she said, if it is so, why then I... Why and then... <laughs> rented lips... If it is so, why then am I this way? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which means rough. All right? Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. And when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. And Jacob, or Yaakov in, in Hebrew, means heel catcher, literally, or supplanter. He was the wily one, right? <laughs> so if we just take a look at this story from a literal point of view, and the Jews had four different levels of interpretation, but that top literal level they called the Peshat, or the simple understanding. This is a story of twins being born to a woman who was barren for many years, and they were very different types of boys, the two twins. Very different, you know, radically different. But if we move down a little bit into what the Hebrews called Midrash, or Drash, that's the search, looking deeper into the scripture, we can find a more spiritual understanding of where this story is taking us. Instead of two different people with radically different natures, we have one person with two natures struggling inside them. And this is what the Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Hatov are all about. There's a wild man in Esau who's focused on physical survival. You know the story where he comes in from the field and he's famished, he's been hunting, and Jacob's been home and he's made a bowl of lentil stew. And he says, give me some of that stew. You know, I'm dying here. And he says, fine, sell me your birthright first. What good's my birthright if I'm starving to death? Yeah, you can have it. Go ahead. Give me the stew. And he gets the stew and he gets some bread. He's focused on the physical survival. He's, he's wild. He's impulsive. He's not, under, he's not got his emotions under control. And then here's Jacob on the other side. He's the gentle one. He's the studious one. He's the one who stays in the tent. He's the one who cooks the stew. And yet, he also is trying to get what he wants and scheming in other ways. But here they are, both separate, both incomplete, both unsuccessful as human beings in their state of aloneness and separation. So when Jacob then tricks Isaac, Jacob tricks his brother Esau out of his birthright, Esau is so furious that he wants to kill him. So Jacob heads for the hills. He goes up north to Haran, where his uh, mother's family lived. And he's there for 20 years. It's a great story with a huge love triangle. You've got to read it. The Old Testament is a crack and read. It's got all kinds of stuff in it. But he falls in love with Rachel, and he has to work. Laban, her, her father, says, okay, and then work for me for seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. And then on the wedding day, he puts a big veil over it and gives him Leah, his older sister, her older sister instead. And then on the, he wakes up in the morning, and, geez, it's Leah. It's not Rachel. So he's upset. He has to work another seven years in order to get Rachel. And then he works another six years past that. So it's 20 years that he's up in Haran to the north, which would be Syria right now. And then he decides, it's time for me and my household, my whole entire household, to go back and reunite with my brother. And so he heads south. And when he gets to the river Javok, 
And he's ready to cross over into Esau's territory. And he's really shaken in his boots because he knows how strong his brother is. And he knows that he's on the other side of the river with 400 horsemen. And he's wondering what's going to happen. And he sends him presents. And he sends this. And he sends that across the river. And then the very night that he's ready to go, this is where Genesis 32 picks up. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabok. And he took them and sent them across the stream. And he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. This is the man that Jacob is wrestling with. Let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What's going on here? You have two brothers who have been apart. You have one person with two natures that have not connected. And as they're coming together, it's the wrestling with God that merges the two natures into one. Jacob, for the first time, shows the chutzpah of his brother, shows the strength of his brother, the assertiveness to wrestle with God, to finally take the bull by the horns and not come around it by some circuitous route or some deceitfulness, but to just hit it right on the head, wrestle with God, work through it to the other side, and balance the two natures into one. And when he does cross the river, his brother is overjoyed to see him, and the two nations become one nation. And that is called that nation is called Israel, which literally means he will rule as God rules. Finally balanced, finally whole. So what the scripture is showing us on the deeper level, on the spiritual level, is what each one of us experiences in our lives. It may sound like I'm trying to persuade you to think a certain way about a specific topic. In this case, Satan. But that's not what I'm trying to do at all. What I'm trying to show you is that there are multiple layers of meaning that the scripture is constantly laying out for us. And if we just take one slice of it, you know, and we build our whole store right there, drive our stake in the ground right there, we are missing so much else that the Scripture is trying to get across to us, the depth that the Scripture is trying to get across to us. And so just to focus on Satan as one thing as opposed to everything else is missing the point. Whether Satan is a human, uh, is a human being, is a heavenly being, or is a human inclination, that's up to you to decide. Become convinced of what you're convinced of. And remember that usually when it comes to spiritual things, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. It's pulling things together from the extremes and finding a balanced middle someplace. Scripture definitely portrays Hasatan in all of these ways. But what way can we understand Hasatan that will do the best job of moving us forward on this journey that we're on, moving us forward to understand who we are with God. That's really what we want to know. What is the overriding understanding of Hasatan in Scripture? I think it's this, that 
Whatever Satan is, whoever, whatever Satan is, there is no power that Satan has that we don't give him. Do you get that? God is one. God is sovereign. Nothing can come against the love of God. Paul tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing to fear, whoever, whatever Satan is, because no power is there that we don't give away, that we don't open the door and bring in or move in that direction. There is no unilateral power. You can't just be walking down the street like some of these movies and suddenly you're possessed by Satan. It doesn't work that way. You know, we don't have to fear that. And what the scripture is always trying to get us to do is to fear not, right? Fear not. And fear of the Lord doesn't mean afraid of the Lord. It means reverence and respect and connection with the Lord. But that's a different topic. Whoever Satan is, there is no power that he has that we don't give him, which means that the choice and the responsibility is always ours. Always ours. And if we're willing to wrestle with God, if we're willing to wrestle with these drives that unbalance us and move us into these directions that are so dysfunctional and harmful often, then we can prevail. We are not victims of a cosmic battle. We're not collateral damage of a cosmic battle. That's what the scripture is trying to get across to us. A battle between good and evil, a battle between God and devil. Because as soon as we believe, as soon as we believe that we're victims, we have no more choice. A victim is defined as having no choice in the matter. If you're victimized, You'd had no choice in it. You didn't ask for it. You couldn't prevent it. And there's nothing you can do to change it. And if we believe that we are victims of a cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, then that means that we're abdicating our responsibility for change. It makes change impossible because we don't believe that we can choose. It's like those two wolves inside the Native American grandfather. Which one are you feeding? What belief or understanding are you feeding? Because that is the one that is going to grow stronger. That is the one that is going to become absolutely overpowering. And the more that you think about the devil, the more that you give Satan that power away, the more that God becomes weak psychologically. You would never say that or define it. But the stronger the devil becomes, the weaker God, and the more absent God becomes. If all the evil keeps happening here and there's nothing we can do about it and the devil is so present, then God is impotent. God has nothing to do with where my life has really lived, the relevancy here. And we become ruled by fear. And of the choices, all the choices we make are choices that are made in fear and not love. How do we take a message like that and actually apply it? The first is to realize that our beliefs have consequences. What you believe has real-world consequences in your attitudes and in the way that you process your experiences, in the choices that you make. How are your choices made? Have you ever really thought about that? How do you make choices, especially the really important ones? What is your focus, by and large, each day, all day long? 
is really the overriding focus and the overriding um, attitude about preserving life and limb and, and house and mortgage? Are you really so much always worried about and thinking about preserving your physical life, getting ahead, making money, building security? Now, that's something we all have to do. But is it so overriding? Are you so worried and so anxious and so tense about such matters all the time that you really lose the sense of hope? That you're working so hard that you lose the sense of actual dependence and reliance on a power greater than yourself? Then you've gotten out of balance. How much of your energy then is spent in giving back, in giving away, in letting things flow through you, in not worrying about where the next paycheck is going to come if you let some flow through here. Or if you make a big life decision and leave a sure thing in order to follow a dream, a heart's desire, follow your bliss. Are you too afraid to do that? Or can that flow from you as well? Or can you just stop and feel the presence, God's presence, the sense of creation being actually alive and connected to you in some way that you can't see or taste or or touch necessarily, but you just know that it's true. And the relationships that you have that become so precious, even though they're difficult and sometimes dysfunctional, can we just go about leaving people better than we found them? Even if that just means the smile in the grocery aisle, just acknowledging someone's presence, is that the foremost thing in our mind as we go through life? See, whatever we decide, whatever we decide to believe about Satan, about God, about such issues, is going to color everything. But if we can pay attention, pay attention to yourself during the day. What really are your motivations? What really is your go-to emotion? Is it always stress? Is it always worry? Or really, is there a sense of contentment? Is there a a sense that everything somehow is going to be okay? Even as I work hard for the future and to plan and to do the things I do, is there a balance there? Are we constantly worried about spiritual warfare? Are we constantly worried about attack? Or can we just relax and realize... If God is for us, who can really be against us? What is the balance here? Paul said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said that in Romans. This idea of us being able to renew our mind, to think differently about something, to recognize when a belief system is causing us to move into a place where Satan and evil are all-powerful and God is an absent landlord? Or can we start to renew our mind and think about things in a different way? Can we let the Scriptures open up possibilities of new ways of understanding and creating a paradigm that allows us to choose differently, to feel differently, to have different attitudes? That's the power here. Our belief in whatever we say we believe is only as right, is only as true, is only as correct as the ability that it gives us to live as Jesus lived. With that kind of balance, with that kind of confidence, conviction, assurance, 
that his father is in heaven and he's one with his father and everything is going to be okay. If your belief allows you to do that, then it's true. And all of these different layers of scripture give you different ways to look at things. And maybe this works for this period of your life, but circumstances change and you need to change with it. But what remains constant is God's presence, God's allness and foreness of us. Can we stay focused on God's presence? And can we stay focused on a love that always, no matter what we do, leaves people better than we found them? That's what Scripture is to me. It is the mirror held up that shows me God's nature, allows me to realize I'm not alone in all of this. I never was. And also allows me to realize that everything I do is just rearranging deck chairs on the ship. The ship was given to me and the chairs were given to me. My life was given to me. I am God's son, God's dependent. And I can just relax in that and be okay if I choose. And it's all there. The scriptures are giving us the model that we can just relax. This is what I'm convinced of. All I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. Now go become convinced of what you're convinced of. Let's pray. Ah, Father, thank you, Lord, once again. Thank you for being all that in our lives. Thank you for being one God, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth that still knows each one of us absolutely intimately. Thank you for that kind of connection. Help us to springboard off of that. Help us to find our way, knowing that we already have everything that we need in you. Lord, you're such a blessing to us. Help us to see the blessings that are right before us. Help us to move into new ideas. Not be afraid. Not be afraid to pursue new lines of thought that will renew our mind and transform us from the inside out. Father, we love you. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.